You're listening to the Doc Lounge Podcast. This is a place for candid conversations with healthcare industry's top physicians, executives, and thought leaders. This podcast is made possible by Pacific Companies, your trusted advisor in physician recruitment. My name is Summer Gilbert, and I'm the Director of Marketing and Branding here at Pacific Companies. And today on the podcast, we have Dr. Philip Demon, board-certified anesthesiologist practicing in our neck of the woods, Orange County, California. Chatting with him today, I have my coworker, Casey Galpin, our Pacific Companies Director of Recruitment in the Permanent Division. And just a quick reminder, this podcast is intended to be an open forum. Any personal beliefs, views, or opinions represented in this episode are that of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Pacific Companies. Please have an open mind and remember that this podcast is not a news source, but rather a safe and neutral platform for candid conversations. All that being said, Dr. Denham, thank you so much for being here with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for reaching out. Dr. Denham, to get started, let's have you give our listeners a quick rundown of your background and when you got started, your specialty, just a quick 30-second synopsis. Yeah, I was raised here in Southern California. I uh, grew up as the son of a physician, a cardiologist, my father, who's retired now and still with us. Uh, His dad was also a physician, a general practitioner in Las Vegas. I uh, grew up around medicine, didn't really know I wanted to do medicine until I went off to college at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, ended up pre-med there, went to med school there. I did all my training at L.A. County USC, just this beautiful Art Deco hospital with the traditional eight lines, different colored, painted on the ground, and you had to follow the black line to the red line to get to radiology and anesthesiology and the surgery and the O.R., and incredible history there built in the early 20s. I actually, in my training, got to present a case to the world-famous pathologist, Dr. Thomas Noguchi, who was actually the pathologist on uh, Marilyn Monroe's autopsy and Bobby Kennedy and even the Manson murders. So I felt very lucky in that regard to just be around such um, great areas of medicine. So, And the training I got was just fantastic, working long hours, 80, 90, 100 hours a week of experiencing everything from multiple traumas and to just different uh, rare bird anesthesia cases. So I really enjoyed my training there. From there, I came to North Orange County and uh, worked at a great community hospital that's just expanded now so dramatically that we're really pioneering a lot of different areas of medicine. So I love what I do. Really glad I chose anesthesia. A lot of difficulties in medicine today, but uh, I'm very happy at what I do. So that's where I'm at. Very cool, Doc. So I got to take a half step back on you. So you said your grandfather was a general practitioner. Your dad was a cardiologist. How did they let you get into anesthesiology and not get into cardiology? (laughs) That's really funny you say that. Well, I I think most doctors have some exposure to medicine. It's kind of how we all end up in whatever profession we end up in, whether it's experience from our fathers or their friends. Um, They never, my parents and grandparents and family never encouraged me to go to one area of medicine or another, but uh, just do what you feel comfortable. I didn't decide I wanted to be an anesthesiologist till 
halfway through my senior year of medical school. I was thinking I wanted to be an obstetrician, but I did a month of anesthesia, realized these are the coolest, best-looking guys in the world, and so that was me, obviously. So that's what drew me to that. <laughs> obviously. So uh, as I come out of medical school, Doc, uh, you know, being on one of the uh, the road specialties, you could go into any specialty or any residency pretty much in medicine. You picked one of the the four, at that time, hardest residencies to get into. What Walk us through that, making that decision. Uh, anesthesia is, um, uh, I wouldn't say it's one of the hardest. It's not one of the easiest. Uh, but it has definitely progressed in years, since years past. Before I got uh, into an anesthesia residency, it was a two-year residency, and you just kind of got thrown in and thrown out and started working. Um, it was a much more detailed anesthesia residency when I started. Uh, it's three years. That third year is a very intense, very uh, subclinical specialized, whether it's cardiac, pediatrics, uh, obstetrics. You're really focusing on a lot of specifics in those um, uh, last year of anesthesia residency. I love it. I mean, just amazing teachers, but also the people I worked with were really great. If you could go back and... Uh change your specialty, what would it be? If I could go back and change my specialty, I used to say obstetrics because I really enjoyed uh, babies and delivering babies and the surgical aspect of it. Uh, talking to my friends who do obstetrics and gynecology, maybe not as much. They're the the liability is still very high in obstetrics. And uh, but general surgery is fantastic. The surgeons are amazing. Um, I probably not necessarily one of the primary care fields. Maybe a, spe a specialty such as cardiology or um, endocrinology, rheumatology, geriatrics would be fantastic. I love the elderly. Just I, I'm fascinated by the elderly. As a matter of fact, I just had a patient a couple weeks ago. 95-year-old gentleman, World War II veteran, and I couldn't get enough of this gentleman. He uh, Technically, we're not allowed to date our patients, but I actually set up an appointment for me to meet him and bring my children and my parents to meet this gentleman. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. Um, I showed him some old pictures I took when I was visiting Bastogne, and he showed him some foxholes. He's like, yeah, that, those are kind of like the foxholes I was in. Wow. He is still driving still married, and he and his wife have uh, been married for over 60 years, and he's just the most fantastic man. He visits the elderly home in our area and plays jazz music for them. He's just the most fantastic man. I can't wait to uh, for my boys to meet him because I just love my patients. I, I just cannot get enough, especially I love the journey. I love what brought this man to Southern California. You know, he lived in New York. He grew up in New York, went off to World War II in Europe, and ends up in Southern California. Um, you know, and usually it's almost all of that generation came out for aerospace, and that's what he did. He came out here for aerospace back in the 50s and 60s. I, I have a kind of a funny question because I'm sure you probably get uh, pretty comfortable with your patients because when they're coming out of anesthesia, they uh, open up probably more than, than other patients. Is, is that true? You know, surprisingly, not as much as people think. People think, oh, it's truth serum, and they're, oh, I don't want to say anything funny, and surprisingly, very few people say anything funny. I did have a young girl 
say, uh, uh, oh, is it okay for me to smoke weed after this? And I said, well, you probably shouldn't. And her mom was there, and the mom goes, what? And she goes, oh, mom, it's no big deal. And I'm like, oh, and I had sedated this patient. I'm like, we better get out of here before she says something really bad. Yeah. <laughs> so we, I quickly wheeled her from the preoperative area back off to, to the operating room so she didn't say anything uh, that was going to get her into trouble. Yeah. What do you like um, most and least about anesthesiology? I love the acuity. I love just how dramatic people equate it to flying an airplane where your takeoff is really exciting and the landing is really crazy and scary and the middle is a little bit cruise control even the middle can be fascinating and awesome i miss the continuity i I wish i had relationships with my patients that i could establish i certainly have a lot of patients that want me to do their anesthesia time and time again but I, I miss continuity as far as really getting to know a patient. Uh, most people and most patients, they don't really necessarily recognize the anesthesiologist because they don't remember them as well or don't remember the name. Um, but uh, I miss the continuity, I probably. With your practice right now, are you guys using a lot of CRNAs or are you still doing most of it? Or how does that dynamic work? And in turn, in that, how do you see it moving in the future with kind of the, one of the advancements in medicine is a lot of APPs, you know, a lot more prevalent. How do you see that foreseen down the road? Well, so many, so many more patients in medicine. It's not necessarily a competition between nurse anesthetists and anesthesiologists because there's still a plenty of work. Um, you definitely can see that not just anesthesia, but medicine in general is um, a lot of the providers a lot of the hospitals, a lot of the insurers are really trying to cookbook medicine. And it certainly isn't, it's, it's, people talk about the art of medicine, but it's because every case is different. There is no standard. The standardization is important for infection, for quality controls. Yes, standardizations are really critical, but it is not a cookbook. And you can see that that trend is kind of heading there. Hey, we all do it the same way. We all give the same drugs. We get the same results. Perfect. But it doesn't really work like that on an individual basis, an individual patient, an individual case, or individual surgeries. Um, so it, it, it's, it's people that are not in medicine want to cookbook it and say, hey, this is cheaper, therefore we pay. Every, and when you standardize it, you devalue the expertise of the individual too. So you don't want to necessarily cave into the cookbook mentality. There is still, and anybody involved in medicine realizes it's just not that way. Yes, we can do standardizations. Yes, we can keep cost and containments down. But uh, it's important to still recognize the importance of the expertise of the individuals involved. Yeah. Uh, we just actually talked yesterday to a emergency medicine physician uh, from phys- uh, Virginia. And uh, she's been practicing for over 20 years. And she was saying that um, just over the years, she can see that her work is is more about uh, patient satisfaction and making sure the hospital looks good and, uh, you know, making sure she does what she can to not be sued or get the hospital sued. And she feels like she's kind of losing autonomy Um things are changing in that direction. Do you see that in the medical industry right now? Oh, absolutely. And it's it's 
borderline frightening because the, the defensive medicine aspect, we talk about cost containment, but then the ER physician has to get a CT on everybody that complains of abdominal pain or headaches. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't you know, lend to cost containment, but it's about practicing, practicing defensive medicine, unfortunately, in the same way as all aspects of medicine, not just anesthesia, not just ER. Although ER really has it the worst because their satisfaction surveys really are tied to things that aren't in the control, which is patients waiting. Anesthesia satisfaction yeah. surveys are based on nausea, vomiting, and pain. And it's like, well, wait, you just had surgery. Of course you're going to be sore. We can do everything yeah. we can, whether it's nerve blocks or medication, to try to alleviate that pain. But you're going to have pain, and sometimes people get nauseous. So it's yeah. really about managing expectations more than anything. But, yes, now with you know all the managed care, with all the – um, patient satisfaction surveys, and then having reimbursement tied to that, it puts undue pressure and changes that focus of medicine rather than mm-hmm. focusing on the patient. You're really focusing on is this patient going to be happy rather than, you know, did you die, yes or no? That should be satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, too, because a lot of patients I'm hearing are coming in with printouts of, from Dr. Google of what uh, they think they have. And so if the doctor doesn't agree, then, you know, just opens up another can of worms. I want this test. I think I have this. Yeah, exactly. I have a great picture. A friend of mine sent me. It says, my MD degree is more valuable than your Google search. So what advice would you give a, a new physician coming out of residency or fellowship on that same target? Or They want to provide quality care. Patient care is their number one factor, but they have administration saying this, this, this. How, how do you walk that fine line, and what's the recommendation you have for somebody who doesn't have the experience you have of 20 years prior to this new revelation? How do you navigate that? Yes, that's a great question. It's how do you incorporate young people with older physicians? I know when I started, I was just in, you know, fascinated by questions to my older surgeons, older anesthesiologists. What did you do here? What about finances here? How did you spend time with your family? And they all said the same thing. Don't work too much. Even though you want to work hard and make more money, don't work too much. You're going to blink and your kids will be off to college. And it's true. All my kids are off to college now. But, uh, yeah, you want to work hard and you want to make money when you first come out. Um, another thing is trying to balance the relationship of the hospital to patient satisfaction surveys. We're finding that younger physicians coming out would rather just be salaried and work nine to five and go home. We have a hard time getting them to work more, work longer hours. Yeah, it's, there is actually, you know, we talk about millennials, but in how, oh, they don't want to work as much. And there is, some truth to living your life and and having a good quality of life. But uh, at the same time, you want to try and keep your income level at a certain level and you want to balance working enough and having enough personal time. Um, I find that the communication with the hospital administration is of the utmost importance. You have to have a relationship. Rather than adversarial, you have to be working together with the hospital administration And it's not just based on surveys and based on standardizations, but it's also based on that relationship of doing what's best for the patient. And uh, I feel like our hospital is just stellar, amazing, perfect, well, less than perfect, but 
they do a great job at communicating with the medical staff. Yeah, you're definitely in a good situation up where you're at. Um, everything that we've heard about it is that they treat physicians um, very, very well. So uh, the second sentiment is echoed to uh, amongst a lot of your peers that we've spoken to with that. Um, so I guess now the, the, the big question, one of the most important things that we ask physicians on these podcasts is if you look back at residency and where you're at now, what do you wish you knew then that you know now and how would you change or what would you do different the first year out of residency that would have made your life a little easier? Gosh, brilliant question. I think finances, you just come out and you've been studying for 10, 12, 15 years studying medicine and you know nothing about finances. You know nothing about setting up a IRA or setting up uh, your retirement plan or how to invest money or you buy a house and credit or set up an S-Corp or a C-Corp or you're now joining a group that has this S-Corp and C-Corp and benefits and non-benefits and healthcare plans and it's overwhelming. It's so overwhelming that sometimes you just give up and have other people do it for you. Um, and so it's so important to stay current on current financial topics, current financial settlements, um, issues. It's difficult, but uh, you, that's where a lot of the older physicians and older elderly population can really help you. And they'll say, set up your retirement early. Start saving every penny you can. Because when you get to be my age, 23 years of practice, you start looking towards the end and saying, oh, if I retire in 12 years, will I have enough money to retire, continue the same lifestyle that I've been living, but at the same time be able to provide for my family? It gets overwhelming. And so start saving early. Start getting financial advice as early as you can. Um, don't be afraid to work hard, but obviously spend time with young children and family as much as you can and our parents. I mean, that's our invaluable source right there. Yeah. How do you manage your work-life balance? I have an amazing wife. I got really lucky. I married my high school sweetheart, and just turns out she happens to be the most beautiful, funniest, smartest, wittiest, greatest Aww. mother, incredible wife. I just got lucky. So I would. my recommendation is get lucky when you marry a great woman. Oh, so she'll definitely be listening to this podcast. Hopefully, this episode. She's too busy. <laughs> I have a random question for you. Have you ever um, worked in a remote setting, um, like rural? I've done some remote um, anesthesia. I've done some remote medical care. I've done, um, you know, kind of the um, sort of a something similar to Doctors Without Borders in which we were um, giving medicine and, you know, it wasn't even just anesthesia, but medical care to indigent areas. Fascinating, rewarding, amazing, loved all that. Uh, I have friends that do some rural medicine and certainly some locum tenums, and they love that. They're empty nesters, and they enjoy uh, the travel and the different experiences that they get with that. Um, and they said the money is fine, but they just love the freedom that it gives them. I don't know if yeah. I'm quite there yet. I'm still uh, paying for some a lot of college tuition, but I could definitely yeah. see myself enjoying that aspect of medicine in the future. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe even locum tenens. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
So this is my favorite question, and I talked to you on the phone a little bit yesterday, and uh, you mean you had so many stories, you didn't even know where to start. So what um, are some of the most crazy stories from your career? Um, I know it's going to be hard to pick with all. Oh, gosh, there's so many crazy stories. I mean, it's, it's the people and the laughter you share afterwards, but at the time they seem so scary so hair raising, whether it's having a Jehovah Witness patient who refuses, who does not want to receive any blood products and their hemoglobin drops down to 3.8 while you're trying to uh, resuscitate them or keep them alive. It's, it's very scary in that regard. But uh, yeah. one of my most interesting stories was when I was in residency, um, as chief residents, we had this secret job that we passed down. Uh, from chief resident to chief resident, where we moonlighted at the local police station in Los Angeles. It was called Parker Center, and I was supposed to, they they called me to come in. I wasn't on working that day, but they said, can you come in and work? I said, I can't. Maybe I can come in later. They said, ah, don't bother. It just happened to be the day that they brought O.J. Simpson in, was booked at the police station. They brought him into the infirmary at the police station. Um, they examined him noticed the cut on his hand, drew his blood, and documented the whole medical history. And then they, they, the defense attorney said, well, that was the blood they sprinkled around the crime scene, and that's where they got the DNA. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, that could have been me. My life could have been turned upside down. Uh, it's a fascinating story, but I'm glad I wasn't involved in any of that. Oh, um, yeah. But uh, that was pretty hair-raising. I know my wife gets tired of me telling that story in more detail, but uh, that was pretty interesting. Um, it just seems like every day is something new, something fresh. Um, unfortunately, administrative aspects get in the way of medical aspects, but I still love what I do, so I'm very lucky. What about your uh, presentation to uh, Thomas Noguchi? Well, that was fascinating when I had an incredible case that I did and early on in my training where I had to prevent, present a case of a tracheoesophageal fistula. We had to do an incredible intubation of this patient who was having blood and air coming out of his mouth from his esophagus and from his trachea. And uh, I had to present this case to Thomas Noguchi, who was the world-famous pathologist. He was in charge of the Marilyn Monroe uh, autopsy, Bobby Kennedy's, even the Manson families, and this the TV show Quincy, way back when in the 70s or maybe 80s, was based on this man's life. And here I am presenting at this conference with hundreds of physicians, and he's sitting in the front row asking me questions about why I did this and why I did that and why I gave this medicine. It was it was definitely a highlight of my early early career. So I love that. That's awesome. I love, I mean, obviously you have so much history in in medicine, and uh, I love just how vast all these different physicians we talk to, all their stories are, and um, I mean, it's, it feels like such a fulfilling and interesting and you know, no day's the same kind of career. Oh, yes. Everything just feels very new every day. It doesn't feel like a chore. But at the same time, it does get heavier each year. I don't, you know, being on call and up for 24 hours or 36 hours isn't what it used to be. I felt like I sprung back a lot easier then than I do now. But uh, I still love what I do. If you're talking to a, a semi-commander training 
and they're thinking or come out of medical school, they're looking to go into anesthesiology. What are the challenges that they're going to face as an anesthesiologist if they're, if that's what they choose to do? The challenges with anesthesia now is if you go into the big city, you're going to be joining large groups, and sometimes they're large corporations, and you're just going to be an entity with a little less voice than you wish you had. Smaller rural areas, your voice will be heard, your voice will be listened to. Um, administrative duties now for all areas of medicine, but not just anesthesia, really compile a lot of the time and process. It's about uh, talking to the hospital, talking to the insurance companies, trying to, if a case gets denied, you have to figure out why and then spend a lot of time and energy to get reimbursed for that. We talk about the money aspect, but unfortunately, that's a reality. If you're doing things for free and assuming the liability, you don't want to do cases for free and you're assuming the liability for this patient's life, you certainly want to be compensated for that and compensated fairly. Um, anesthesia is a unique challenge in that uh, you can see medicine being a little more broader towards uh, a socialized aspect of medicine on a lot of the HMOs, and anesthesia takes a bigger hit financially than most specialties um, because of Medicare rules and rates. So anesthesia is definitely at a crossroads right now. Where do you see it going? Do you see kind of like the question earlier with more CRNAs, or what do you think is the is the answer? The it's hard to say, but it's definitely making sure that anesthesia's voice is known and that it's not – anesthesia's really been at the forefront as far as letting every aspect, the hospital, know what we're doing, what we're involved in, staying involved with the hospital, because almost all of anesthesia is hospital-based. Um, there's mm -hmm. certainly surgery centers and private offices, but uh, it's staying involved with the hospital, staying involved with administrative aspects making their value and their worth known in what we are doing. So it's it's that communication of getting that voice out that is the most important thing. It's uh, We might have to have a part two with this. This has been a fascinating conversation, but I, we're almost at our time cap that we have here. So, um, But one other random question for you. Um, are your kids going to go into, into medicine? Is that the plan that, that they have, or is that something you're kind of um, uh, help, hoping or guiding them into? Uh, being a physician, I, I've talked to uh, many students uh, at universities that are pre-med, pre-med fraternities, pre-med organizations, and the one thing I, I ask, I said, how many of you pre-med students have been told not to go into medicine? And 100% of their hands go up. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a very difficult aspect of, uh, of any business right now, of any career choice. So I emphasize the money is not as dramatic as it used to be. You cannot go into medicine for the money. You have to really go in with a passion. If you really want to help people, then going into medicine is definitely for you. But there's a lot of aspects of medicine that people don't realize. It's not just nurse anesthetists. It's not just anesthesiologists. It's not just uh, PCPs. It's not just other areas of medicine. It's PAs. It's nurse um excuse me, uh, nurse practitioners. Mm -hmm. It's uh, ancillary people that are helping in all aspects. And so combining all those things is great for the patient and great for healthcare. But uh, it's important that, you know, it's the, it's the physician's name who is on that chart. 
And yeah. it's important that that physician realizes what he's involved with. It's not just the nurse anesthetist who's necessarily autonomous or the nurse practitioner or the PA. It's still under the supervision. So it's not a, a bad thing, all these ancillary people helping out in medicine. It's a good thing. It's good for patient care. But uh, it's important to know what you're getting into. And so my daughter is going off to nursing school. I have a younger daughter who hasn't decided yet. I told her she's got to be a doctor so she can help take care of me when I get older. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's it's definitely, if you're going to choose medicine, you do it for the right reasons. Um, A long time ago, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal called The Million Dollar Mistake. You're taking these brilliant people, putting them into medicine, 12 years of no income, and then uh, only a limited earning potential for till you can't work forever as a physician. And yeah. so they say, oh, it costs these smart people a million dollars over their lifetime. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but you definitely want to go into medicine to be a doctor for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah, nursing is great. Love nursing. PAs are awesome. Nursing is just great. It's all wonderful. It's all great. That's unanimous. When we uh, ask the physicians that we've chatted with on our podcast so far, unanimously, they all said, do not be a doctor for the money. You have to do it because you love it. And that's for picking a specialty. That's anything in medicine. uh, When it comes to being a physician, do it because you love it. Well, and one area of uh, aspect of that is, and Insurance companies, hospitals, and payers realize, hey, these doctors are doing it because they love it, and they do get taken advantage of. You know, I feel a little bit like that now. I'm working. I do a lot of work for free. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not just do do my procedures. I'm doing a lot of work for free. And so you do feel like I'm working longer hours, getting reimbursed less, and you do feel like, oh, yes, the insurance companies, the payers are realizing that and taking advantage of that, and something Certainly needs to be done about that dramatic effect. I'm not sure what can be done, but we'll have to, I think something needs to be done about that. Yeah. Well, Dr. Demon, thank you so much for chatting with us. Um, I'm, I'm with Casey. We're going to have to do a part two with you. So uh, um. More than welcome to anytime. <laughs> you guys are great. I think what you're doing is really neat, and I think it can really help prospective medical students, interns, residents, but even older physicians, like you said earlier, that sometimes uh, we talk about certain cases and you get that information. It's sharing of that information, sharing of that knowledge. The communication is what really is beneficial. Great job, you guys. Thank you. We'll have a wonderful day. Fantastic. Thank you, Summer. Thank you, Casey. Thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast would not be possible. If you'd like to be a guest or for more information, go to www.pacificcompanies.com.